way we can. Um, our big limitation um, right now in really every um, area is staffing. Um, so if you want to be more involved with kids and, um, and help us continue to love on and minister to families, um, we'd love for you to get more involved with, um, with our children's program. Um, uh, Julie right here, Smith, takes care of children's worship. Um, and Kelly and Julia Harris take care of the nursery. We'd love for you to talk to them too um, about getting involved. And we have a bunch of other ways to get involved. Um, we are in Galatians and have been for a while. And we're in Galatians 5 this morning. Um, and as I told you two weeks ago, um, that we're moving now on this hinge that the Apostle Paul and the way that he writes his letters typically is he puts the indicative first and then the imperative. Um, as I said before, if, um, if English grammar was a long time ago for you, um, or even if it's right now and you're not grasping it too well, um, indicative um, is a fancy word about grammar that simply says it is a statement that says what is, what is currently true. And so if I say it is a nice day outside, that is an indicative statement. It is a nice day outside. If I say you are currently here, that is an indicative statement. You are currently here. Um, Paul spends the first half of his letters making indicative statements. Who is God? What has he done? What is your secured relationship with him? How does the world work? Those are all indicative statements. And then based on those statements in the second half of his letters, he gives the imperative. Imperative statements are telling you to do something. So if I say, there's a fire, run out. There's a fire is an indicative statement. Run out is an imperative. I'm telling you to do something. And really crazy things go wrong in the Christian life when we switch those. So a lot of people come to the Christian faith and say, I need to do several things in order to secure my status before God. I need to attempt to be holy. I need to clean my life up and then I can be a Christian. Um, that's actually the way of every other world religion. Christianity's backwards. The Christian says that in space and time, God has saved them and has already made them the children of God, and it is out of that secure identity that they operate. So we do pursue God. We do pursue moral morality. We love people. We have biblical ethics. But we do those things because we are secure in God, not because we're questioning whether we're secure in God. And so the Apostle Paul, right now in Galatians 5, is about to make that switch. He's going to move in and talk about a bunch of things that fall into Christian ethics and Christian morality, but it's important for you to understand where we've been um, and where we're, we're going. And he's giving this clear summary this morning of the Christian gospel. And so what I hope to do in the brief amount of time I have this morning um, is help you understand not just the gospel, but really the scandalous, the offensive nature of the cross of Jesus. And you'll see that come up in our passage here um, this morning. And to give you some context of where we are in culture right now, I'm sure that you have looked at the news and you've realized that what we would call biblical morality, um, which had sway in America for a long time to differing degrees, um, is now being eroded. And so there are several um, things that are happening in politics, several things in culture um, that are very clearly um, immoral or sin um, that the culture is deciding that we're going to be okay with. And so people who hold to a biblical morality um, are starting to be portrayed as offensive, closed-minded, bigots, whatever words um, that you want to associate with that. And you've seen that in, um, in the news media. It is the way it is. 
um, cultures actually do that and have done that. They swing back and forth. If you look at the history of, say, Rome, you look at the history of other cultures in the world, they swing between pretty tight-laced traditional morality even to pretty open um, immorality. And right now, our culture is, is swinging towards um, more of the immora- immorality. We need to be okay with, with most everything. Um, and so what Christians are being labeled as uh, are mean, moralistic um, fuddy-duddies. And so what the culture is, the way that they're labeling us is the thing that's so offensive about you is that you're so moral and traditional and you think this is the only way to go and you have these rules that you follow. What we have to be careful as, as Christians, is to say we do believe that. We do have a consistent moral code because we believe in a God who told us the best way that life works and we believe him and trust him. And so we're going to live our lives that way. But that is not the most offensive thing about Christianity. Our moral code should not be the thing that offends culture the most. And culture is going to try to, over the next few decades, label us that way. Say the most, most offensive thing about you is that you're moral and look down other people. We do try to be moral, but there's actually something even more offensive about us um, to the culture, which we're going to look at this morning, which the Apostle Paul talks about. And the reason that's so important is not just because we care about the clarity of the gospel, but we care about the preeminence of Jesus. And so let's say in 10 years from now, some people say, well, we've tried this whole immoral thing, and um, we've really found our lives are a wreck doing that. We'd really not like to do that anymore. We want to be more moral. You understand that Christianity is just one of the options that holds to what we would call traditional values. And in fact, not one of necessarily the most zealous of the options. I mean, if you're looking to be really hyper rules, you could go to something like Islamic Sharia law. And so it's not uncommon, and it shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be unexpected that today you see the rise of both of those things. Hyper Islamic Sharia law and rabid um, immorality running in both directions. And so if people decide, hey, I want to be moral, you understand you, you can be Jewish, you can, be, um, you, can go to, uh, you can be Muslim, you can be Christian. Um, there are several forms of atheism that believe in a pretty solid form of morality. And so it will be important for us um, over the next few decades to make sure that we are clearly stating what is so offensive about Christianity and what makes us stand out in comparison um, to other religions. And that is the, the preeminence of the gospel of Jesus. Um, so that we don't fall into similar things that we've seen in America where people become moral and they decide that that makes them Christian um, and then all of a sudden figure out that they never had a firm relationship with Jesus because they were trying to um, build it on the imperative rather than indicative as we've already um, talked about. So that's where we're going this morning. We're in Galatians um, 5 and um, I'll read um, read for us from verses 7 down to 12. It's Apostle Paul talking to the church at Galatia. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Um, Pretty bold words from the Apostle Paul. Um, Why don't we pray real quick before we consider them. Father, we love you. Um, As we consider these things, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us from your word that we would see Christ. And as we see him lifted up, not only we, but others would be drawn to him as well. Thank you for the grace that he's given us. And we pray in his name. 
Um, Amen. Uh, Whenever I come to a sermon and I do my sermon study during the week, there's always probably five different sermons I can preach, and I always have to pick the one that I want to preach um, or go for two and a half hours. And so um, for your sake, um, I pick out of the five rather than lumping them all um, together. And so um, we are going to talk about the scandal of the cross this morning, but I wanted to just show two interesting things really briefly um, before we get to to the scandal of the cross of Christ. Um, And the first one is just drawing on that language of running well. Um, In the beginning, you see that in verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, you are running well. Who has hindered you? Um, The language uh, makes it more difficult to understand what's going on. Um, And he's giving the the idea of a race. And so back in those days, they still had um, the Olympic Games, and they would have marathons, and um, they had other different kinds of running races. And so the running race was a familiar metaphor that Paul liked to incorporate. And he said that when the Galatians were looking to Jesus by faith, trusting in him alone, finding justification in him, living under the power of the Holy Spirit, loving each other apart from finding their identity and their own works of religiosity, um, they were running well. That was good running. And then he said, well, who's hindered you? Who's cut in on you? It's almost as if they were running in a race and someone tried to kind of cut them off. And now they're not running so well. They had come in, these agitators, and they had tried to give them some performance-enhancing drugs. They said, listen, we can, we can do some doping, you know, we can give you some anabolic religious steroids, you know, we can run your blood through some things and re-inject it into you, and all of those things they were articulating were legalism, ways that they could find security with God in what they could do, and they kept turning to Old Testament things. And so I wanted to just show you again that if you think about what does it mean for me to run well as a Christian, if it's a race and I'm running well, I don't want to get cut in on, I don't want to be hindered, I don't want to you know, trip over the hurdles, I don't want to get a, you know, a, a welt on my foot or anything like that. It means this Christian gospel of looking to God for your finished standing, looking to Christ and what he's done, making Jesus first um, in your life. And so I wanted to show that. And if you flip to the end, second interesting note, um, and, and people always think that the, the Bible is um, you know, pretty pretty ho-hum. Um, you know, Paul there, verse 12, is, um, as we would say, talking biblical smack. And so um, he's, he's laying into these agitators um, there. And um, the question he's asking is, um, what is the logical end of your current pursuits of holiness? It's important for us to ask. And so for them, they were really talking about um, about circumcision, and circumcision was just the highest thing ever. And we talked about it two weeks ago. Um, You know, if I put a bar on church membership, you know, minor outpatient surgery of that nature in order to join Christ's covenant, um, if you said you were a member, like, people would look at you like, wow, like, that's legit. Like, that person really went through something, made a big commitment um, to do that. And the Apostle Paul is saying, if you look to those kinds of zealous works as your standing of holiness and righteousness before God, well, what's the end of it? And he says, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. Like, I mean, don't just stop at circumcision, go all the way, not to be too graphic since we have kids around, but Paul's saying that right here, and we have to remember that when we look at our own pursuits of holiness. So, for example, sociologists have done studies on on how we feel as Americans and what's going on, and um, one of the two big words is um, scarcity and failure. And so um, sociologists, even non-Christian sociologists, have done work and said that everybody feels this lack. I'm not enough. I just, I, I can't cut it at work. I can't cut it at home. I can't cut it in the church. And so you also have this overwhelming sense of failure and shame. 
And so you come at those things, many people, by trying to do routines of religiosity. And if you're looking to your performance or right standing with God, then what's the logical end of that? What's the, what's the end like emasculation would be for if you're looking at circumcision? Is it not more exhaustion? If you're, if you're exhausted and feel like a failure, and so you're going to try to do more to earn God's pleasure, and you never feel like you can do enough, do you not see where that, key, where that ends up? So if that's what you're feeling this morning, the Apostle Paul is, is giving you release and freedom in the Lord Jesus and his finished work so that we as a culture who are under the weight of shame and failure and not feeling enough can finally lay down our attempts at crafting our spiritual resume and look to Christ in joy and saying, Lord Jesus, you are enough for us. You've accomplished what we need to do. And so I always laugh when I read that verse and so couldn't preach the sermon without talking about Galatians 5, um, 12 and, and Paul's gospel smack talk. And sometimes you need to do that to yourself. Like, what are you doing? You keep doing that stuff, you're going to end up exhausted and feeling like more of a failure. Why don't you look to Jesus instead? Better option. Um, so, um, given those two interesting notes, we'll dive into the sermon. We're looking at um, Paul there, especially in, um, in verse 11, where he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Um, that word offense in um, the Greek is, uh, if we pronounce that word in the Greek, is skandalos. I mean, probably know the word scandal, TV shows named after scandal. Um, every week, journalists looking for scandal. And, and what a scandal is, um, is not just an error. It's not just a, a sin that's been committed. But when we use the word scandal, um, we talk about something that's happened that undermines the whole reputation. That's, that's what a scandal is. So I can make a mistake and it not be a scandal. If I do something really bad that totally restores, destroys my reputation in my life, well, that's a scandal. And you can go through the news and find those things. And so Paul's going in here saying, listen, if I was preaching circumcision, if I was preaching works as a way to be right with God, then why are people still so upset with me? Because everywhere I go, people are upset with me. I mean, read, read Corinthians and the kind of stuff that the Apostle Paul's been through. I mean, if you think of like somebody like Jack Bauer and, you know, what his body looked like after he had been, you know, tortured and been in the military and all that. Like the Apostle Paul, like when he talks about the things he suffered, the beatings and the stonings, I mean, several times stoned unconscious. I just imagine for a moment what has to happen to you in order to be stoned unconscious. And then he would get up and go back into the town to preach the gospel again. Several times whipped 40 lashes minus one, because, you know, they thought 40 was just way too much. So, but 39 was okay. And so 39 times with a, a, a whip with shards of bone and glass woven into it. Um, and, you know, not to be too graphic. But he's saying, listen, if, if I was saying right standing with God is through what we do, why is everybody so upset with me? In that case, everybody would not be so offended with my gospel. My gospel would not be such a scandal um, to people. And so the way Paul's using the word scandal and offense is that God has done something scandalous. That God has apparently made such a mistake that it has undermined his reputation. That there is no way a God of holiness and justice and truth could save people this way 
much less this kind of people. If that were true, this God would have committed a huge scandal and undermined completely who he is. And so for the Apostle Paul to come in and say that, it was scandalous. It wasn't just God made a minor mistake. In doing salvation this way, God has undermined his whole reputation for being God. And that's why we people were so upset. They were constantly looking at Paul and saying, you can't say that about God. That is offensive. That is a scandal. And like in a lot of places in the Bible, we actually find two different ways it works out, both of them biblical. Um, I think the second one is here in, um, in this passage is being talked about. So I'm going to talk about the two ways um, that the gospel is scandalous this morning um, before we close in, in just a minute. And the first one is that the gospel is scandalous in how God saved people. The second one is going to be the gospel is scandalous in how Christians live their lives. But the first one, the gospel is scandalous in how God chose to save people. Um, Paul will pick up on that same language in 1 Corinthians, if you want to read there in chapter 2 later today, where he'll say that the gospel of Jesus, the cross, is scandalous to both Jews and Greeks. To the Jews who were looking for power religion, it was scandalous. To the Greeks who were looking to wisdom religion, it was scandalous. And so as we kind of parse that out, what's scandalous about the way that God has chosen to save people and glorify himself in the world, we see three things. First, it doesn't seem fair. Um, And our family right now with the age of our kids, the word fair is coming up a lot. Um, You older parents can tell me if that ever ends. Um, I'm not sure if it does. Um, but in our, our household, things are often not fair. Um, and, and our kids are constantly trying to make things um, fair. And when you look at the gospel of God, and this isn't to deny the justice of God, but when you look at what he did to save sinners, it's not fair. It's not. If God were to enact fairness and justice, then he would save no one. I mean, what fairness is before the throne of a just God is that when people rebel against him, run in their their own way, say, we're going to have no part of this, spurn and scorn his name, sometimes even while pretending to worship him, for those people to not be allowed access to him is simply fair. For those people to experience hardship in life because of their sin is fair. For those people to be forced to look to their own works to try and be right before God is fair. But for those people somehow to find salvation and acceptance with that God apart from having to do anything, that's just not fair at all. And so you have to understand that in salvation, God's not fair. He actually gives us what we don't deserve rather than what we deserve and he takes upon his son and himself what we deserved so that we might find access to him and so to some degree in this first point under our first subheading it is it looks like the gospel is not that scandalous if you were writing a way of salvation you would not do that If you were God and people had offended you and spurned your name and done awful things to them, like you would have a list of things they would need to do to be right with you for a really long time that may even change over time depending on how angry you are. That would be fair. 
but our God in the gospel of Jesus and pouring the judgment that was due to us on him instead is grossly unfair. And so it is a scandalous gospel that sinners like us, a ragtag bunch like us, should be in his presence and be accepted based on what he's accomplished for us. Second reason that the excuse me, the gospel is, um, is scandalous is that it doesn't seem wise. Again, if you're going to chart the way to save people, you would not chart your own son bearing their wrath. I have four sons. I would not give any of them for you. And I like you a lot. I do like you a lot. And I would not allow any of them to suffer for your sins. I'm not going to give them up for that. That's not going to be my plan to pay for them in full, to not require anything back from them, simply to save them because I've chosen to love sinners who've run in the other direction, that is not wise. That's not the plan that I would write, and yet our gracious God's plan was to pour out his wrath on his own dear son. And it was the plan of his own dear son to say to his father, yes, I will do that. Sometimes we forget that aspect of the Christian gospel, that God the Father, of course, poured out his wrath on the Son, but the Son willingly decided that was the plan, and it was as difficult as the Father to pour out eternal judgment on his own Son for something somebody else had done as it was for the Son to receive it. Can you imagine doing that to one of your children, something that they didn't deserve? You can almost feel the the anguish and the tension between the Father and the Son. And so the Lord Jesus, to crowd on the cross, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? To feel the distance that sin has created, but to know on the other side of that distance is the Father who has willingly had the hardship of hearing his Son say that and know that in that moment he was not going to break through and come in and say, I'm really here. He would allow his son to experience that kind of separation from him so that no Christian ever would be separated from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound like a good plan to me. That sounds like a scandalous plan to me. That God would choose the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to save a people for himself. That's scandalous the third thing that's scandalous about the way that God saves us is that it doesn't seem very powerful. And all of our stories, in all of our movies, there comes the point where all of a sudden it seems like the hero is going to fail and the hero comes through and is glorious and awesome. And that does happen at the resurrection. But the point, the point of the payment of sin, Jesus looks like an utter humiliated failure certainly there could be a more powerful way for God to come into the world. Why did he choose the womb of the Virgin Mary to come in to the world? He could have chose angels. He could have chose like black suburbans with tinted windows to kind of haul in from heaven in this huge motorcade and step out in brilliance, strapped to the nines with weapons and a cool suit. I mean, he could have chose every kind of way to exude his glory rather than to go through a life in third world poverty, to love people, to be neglected, to be humiliated, to be scorned, and finally to die utterly alone, even from his own heavenly father. That doesn't seem very powerful. That isn't what I would do. If I was looking for a religion of power, of self-actuation, 
This is not the one I would look to. But that is what our God chose to exude his mighty power. That Jesus experienced the utter weakness, the weakness of dying for sin. The weakness of experiencing the eternal wrath of God. And then on the back end of that humiliation and weakness to rise triumphant in power. And then again to give that power to a weak people. And to continue even in the way that the world is now. I wish sometimes that the Lord God would just snap his fingers and that justice would finally be done and that we would finally be revealed for who we are, the sons and daughters of God, shining as saints as we one day will, but for a time, weakness and humility. And yet amazing things are happening. People coming to life in Christ, being converted, people truly finding victory over sin, people in the midst of suffering, worshiping God, still his amazing power is being made perfect in weakness. So again, the cross of Jesus and the way that God saved us is amazingly scandalous. God in time found a way to glorify himself by looking foolish. He found a way to glorify himself by taking on the wrath of sinners. He found a way to glorify himself by being weak and humiliated. And in that, he was able to secure for us that he would always have the title as the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. We read this morning, Alana read from Acts 4, 11 and 12, where it said there's no under name um, under heaven and earth that one can find salvation because there is no other religion that's as crazy as this. There is no other way that we can know for sure. Sinners like us, apart from any of our works, can find a secure salvation in God and that that God could still remain holy and just beyond reproach, that he can both be exactingly just in the detail of his law in every aspect and still be absolutely loving and merciful to people like us. It seems like a pipe dream that we could be near a God that just and awesome people like us who fail as, awesome, as, awful, as often as we do. That's the scandal of the cross of Jesus. It really makes so little sense to what the world expects out of religion and right standing and holiness and spirituality. And so that's true. We see that in other parts of Galatians. Um, we see that in, um, in other parts of the Bible. But I think here what the Apostle Paul's talking about, and this will get us well into um, next week when he starts to talk about our behavior, he says the Christian life also is pretty scandalous in the way that we live it. That how we live out that life of faith in Christ is way different than what the world expects. And so um, a few things along those lines. If you decide to no longer find your core identity in what you do and live your life that way, that's nuts. It's nuts. People don't do that. You know, I use the illustration all the time of Saving Private Ryan. Um, and somebody told me I ruined the movie for them um, because the, the end of that movie is horrid. Like, it is so bad. Like, I would love to watch up until the end. I would love to do, like, the, the pastor's edit and re-release it. Um, and I'd, I'd just change one line. 
Um, Because at at the end, you have all these soldiers giving their lives for this private Ryan, and then Tom Hanks turns to him, um, and he says, earn this. And it fast forwards to that soldier as an old man looking at his grave, and you can almost see in his face, like, have I? These men gave their lives to me. Have I earned it? When I look at how I've parented and everything I've done since they rescued me in war, have I done enough to have earned it? And that shapes what everyone thinks about the way life is. So if you decide all of a sudden, I am no longer going to found my identity and earning it, but I'm going to believe that God has already made me someone, not just someone, a blessed someone, a saint, a steward, a son or a daughter, and that is regardless of what I do. And I'm going to live my life that way? That is crazy. Nobody does that. But what we found in the Christian gospel is that that is exactly what Jesus has done. He has given his identity for you so that when God looks at Christ and says, my beloved son, that that same statement now applies to you through your union to him, that God the Father right now looks at you, Christian, and says, my beloved son or daughter. So when you get your performance reviews, when your kids are just freaking out and you have one of those days that you just think you have utterly failed as a parent, When you've had that fight as a spouse and it's gone past the usual amount of time when you say that you're sorry, you know, I know it is for you, like a few hours, a few days, and you're like, oh no, it's it's really bad now. In that moment, instead of trying to control the situation or spiraling into depression, depression or discouragement, instead of trying to get all holy and do crazy things, to in that moment say, yet, the Lord God has loved me. And he has done everything necessary for me to know, despite the things I'm facing, he loves me. And who I am as a person is secure. Who I am as a person is static and cannot change. That's crazy kind of Christian living. I have six of them. I'll go fast. The second one is to fight against sin and the flesh rather than to excuse it is crazy. We are a constantly excusing people. When we see our sin and the things we do wrong, we want to somehow find a way that it's not so bad. That other people do the same thing or nobody was really hurt or, well, I've done it for a long time or it's kind of my personality and so, I mean, that's just kind of what it is or, you know, culture's changing and that was really an old view and new view, enlightened view is that these kind of things are okay but instead to say, no, These things cloud my vision of Jesus. I don't want to excuse my sin. I want to confess it. I don't have to kind of put it into a back trunk or closet, some junk drawer, and hope it doesn't pop out again. I want to bring it to Jesus and say, I believe you've dealt with this and you've forgiven me so I can come to you with my sin and say, I'm sorry. I was wrong, Lord. And I believe you accept and you forgive and that you would love me rather than trying to hide it over here and kind of trying to get near God and hope he doesn't find out that I'm hiding this thing back here or that other people hide out. To say, I've sinned and I've made mistakes and there's some of them that I keep doing over and over and over again and yet I believe in a God who is forgiving and just despite that. Some of you think God will finally love you if you get victory over your besetting sin. 
and you've suddenly fallen, fallen into false religion. It's a crazy way to live. Third thing that's related to that, to confessing that we are weak people by nature and that we don't have our acts together and that we probably always will be is crazy. We're in a world where we are forced at every step to exude competency. You don't believe me? Go on to Facebook. Go on to social media. I don't know if you've noticed, but social media is this. Really high, really good, pretty great experiences of wonderful things. The bad stuff is really bad stuff. Kind of like, that was way out of my control, didn't see that coming, totally not my fault, and now things are really, really bad. Do you notice there's nothing in between? We really want to be super competent until life really knocks us down and then it's bad, and then we're back to super competent. What if we come in and say, I keep getting things wrong. I, I'm, I'm weak. I'm weak in my spirituality. I'm weak in loving people. I'm, I, I'm weak a lot of times in my profession. I'm a lot of times prideful and arrogant, and I'm a really good pretender at it. What if we're a people who come forward and be honest about that and admit that God loves us, not based on our pretended competency, but based on Jesus' super competency? Would that not be refreshing? Do you not love people like that? Do you not love people who come forward and say, yeah, I'm doing the best I can, but you know what? I really get things wrong. We look at those people and say, I love that about them, and I never want to be that way. We really respect it in other people, but we never want to do it. And so what does it look like for us to be crazy people like that, where through Jesus and what he's accomplished, we can admit, I'm weak a lot of times, and I fail a lot of times, and I found a God who loves me and encourages me, and despite my best efforts, is still transforming me into the image of Jesus. It's crazy talk to live that way. Number four, to revalue the world's riches. And this is hard for me, because I love anything that has a, 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 a lowercase i in front of it, um, like iPhones and iPads and iWatches and iCars and i whatever else is. Things that buzz and whir, like I, I love technology um, and things. Um, but Jesus is better than Apple. He is. And Jesus is better than anything and any amount of whatever you could put in my bank account. Jesus is better than what you can park in my driveway. And Jesus is better than whatever my 401 ever has in it. And Jesus is better than um, whatever hopeful wedded bliss I could have in the future. The world says all these I'll be happy wins. And the gospel comes and says, why don't you reevaluate all that and realize that if you have Christ now, you are the richest person ever. You were in the 1%, spiritually, in the 1%, or however many percentage of the people who were truly converted in the world. So what does it look like for you to live your life that way differently? Not always trying to scrape out the next best thing or pre-order whatever it is or whatever you put value on, but to look at life differently and to hold the things of the world with looser hands rather than the white knuckles. Number five, this is maybe some of the hardest one. To commit yourself to a local group of sinful people like us based solely on your belief of a Jewish guy that lived 2,000 years ago. That's crazy. Church should not make sense to the world. We have a lot of things we try to accomplish, but the only thing that binds us together is Jesus. 
And I really hope and pray that our congregation would become more diverse than it is now. And I'm not just talking ethnically, I'm talking about socioeconomically and education-wise and background. I, I hope that we exude diversity so that when people look at our congregation, they say, why would you hang out with one another? Because we believe in a common Jesus. I've, I've really tried, um, and our leadership has really tried to not make Christ's covenant about anything other than Christ, even good things, because we're so fearful that we would find our identity in some type of ministry or being some type of church rather than a people who are bound together by Jesus. I mean, we really are a ragtag, crazy bunch of people. Um, I, know, I know more stories of y'all than, than you know of each other, but if you knew each other and your backgrounds, you just look out and say, wow, like, how in the world? Like when I preached last week at, at Matt Morgan's church in Reston, you know, thinking back to us in seventh grade pre-algebra before I was even a Christian and like standing there preaching in his church, it's like, this should not have been my story. Like I, I shouldn't be here with this people, a part of this thing called the church. Like look what God has done. This doesn't make any sense. So lastly here on this list, to live life in service of others that they might meet Christ. That you see your main mission in life is that you would serve faithfully where you are, whether it's as a mom or a dad, an employee or a boss, whatever you're doing, but that you would try and mold what you're doing for the end goal that people would meet Christ. So if you live on Virginia Ave, I love that you're on Virginia Ave. I love that you found a house there and that you love your neighborhood and maybe participate in the HOA. But the reason you're on Virginia Ave is so that people would meet Jesus. And I love if you work at, you know, Micron or Aerojet Rocket Dine or you just work at McDonald's. The reason you work there is so that people would meet Jesus. We are captivated with the mission of Jesus and God has given us a new mission to see people meet him who haven't met him yet and we want to love them in service so they know us and that's crazy. That's crazy to say that that's our new mission. So the Apostle Paul is saying Christianity is pretty offensive. That, that Jesus has wrecked your life in a way that a scandal would. It's kind of a glorious scandal. Like you realize if you're a Christian like there's no hope for you. Like in terms of the world like you're done. Like, you believe in Jesus, he is actively undermining your life. And some of you are like, I know. I kind of wish he'd stop sometimes. Like, he is actively tearing down things that are opposed to his gospel. He is actively leading you through suffering. He is actively doing things and giving you blessings that you never even asked for and bringing people into your life that you never even wanted in your life. And he's also showing people love you despite what you think you could receive. Like, the scandal of Jesus is ruining you in a glorious ruin. He is remaking you in a way that should be so incomprehensible and so offensive to our culture. That's because you've been united to Christ and he said, you are mine and I am yours and you have been scandalized by my gospel and we're gonna step into this together. And so my gospel is gonna be scandalous and the way you live your life is going to be scandalous as you live by faith in Christ and I am going to work on you and it's gonna get even weirder before I'm done with you. You're gonna say goodbye to a lot of worldly things that you've always loved and you're gonna find yourself all of a sudden not thinking that sin that you always liked all of a sudden isn't as appealing and you're gonna find yourself loving worship more than you ever have before. And I am just going to actively undermine everything that is in your way of seeing my love for you in the gospel. We've been gloriously scandalized. So a few things in closing, exhortation for us. Don't domesticate the gospel. It's so easy for us, especially as people who want to be competent, to say, I got that. 
I got the gospel. Okay, I realize it's scandalous, but, you know, tomorrow it's not going to be because, you know, the gospel is, is, I need to handle that. Don't domesticate it. Don't bring it in like a pet cat or a pet dog that you feed and water and just kind of coo at. The gospel's like a lion, like unpredictable. It's like a lion in your life, like a lion in your house. Like sometimes it looks great and other times it's coming at you. Um, And the gospel should always be that way. Don't domesticate Christianity. Second thing, let the gospel offend you. If it's been a while since you've been offended by the gospel, good bet you've fallen into something that's not the gospel. If you're not thinking, it couldn't be that good. If you're not thinking, why would he have done that for me? If you're thinking, well, of course I got in, but other people, it's going to be more difficult for them. You need to, again, be offended by the fact that God, regardless of anything you've done, your IQ, your graduation, how nice of a person you are, any of those things has simply said, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to shower lavish grace on them. I'm going to take the dump truck of my blessing and back it up on their life and just unload all of it. I'm going to bury them in grace simply because I've chosen to love them. Third thing, offend the world with something more attractive than moralism. The world will be offended by the fact that we have a biblical ethic. We don't have to do anything. We're going to have to work to offend them with the gospel, and that's the work before us as Christian missionaries. People come and say, oh, you've got a you know, traditional family structure and you know, something else. That's really weird. Say, you want to know something really weird? Let me tell you about Jesus and the way that he's, tra- he's changed my life. We can't allow the changing culture to box us into a grid where they can dismiss us. We are way more weird and way more offensive than culture thinks that we are. And it's going to be up to us to exude that to them in a loving way, saying this gospel should make no sense to you. This God should look crazy to you. This kind of life should look crazy to you. And it's at that point you're starting to understand what it truly is. Fourthly, leave space in your worship for surprise and awe. Part of the reason some of you are so bored in these yellow chairs is that you have not left any space for surprise and awe in your worship. When was the last time you sang one of those songs and all of a sudden it just caught you? That's really true about me. When was the last time you walked through these doors and said, I belong here. This is my family because of what God has done. When have you allowed yourself to be surprised by what God has done? We want God to be awful. The old use of the word awful um, was full of awe. And so we look at some of our hymns and it's like, God's awful. And we're like, what? God's not awful? He's great. Um, But he's full of awe. I want our worship services and our view of God to be awful full of awe and surprise um, at who he is. And lastly, um, if you're not yet a Christian, at least be offended by the real thing. Um, I talk to a lot of non-Christians, and one of the things that I try to say, and so if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, is at least be offended, at least reject the real thing. A lot of folks in Culpeper have rejected Christianity, but they haven't actually heard it. It's up to us to take it to them. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm fine with you rejecting Christianity. I wish that you wouldn't. I'll do anything for you to be saved. 
But if you're going to reject Christianity, at least reject the free offer of the gospel in Jesus that is not a religion about cleaning yourself up and finally coming to God and being worthy, but God making you worthy through allowing his son to become dirty, to bear your wrath and shame that you deserved. At least reject the real thing. And let us be a church that at least presents to our culture the real thing so that folks can actually make a decision based on what Christianity is. It's one of the things that's been interesting about some of the folks who've been converted here in our congregation. Many of them thought they were Christians. They'd actually received the wrong thing. And then they were, they were um, confronted with the real gospel and the real Christ and said, wait a minute, I have believed for a long time and taken upon myself the Christian name because I thought I'm generally moral and I've grown up in the tradition, Christian tradition. Now all of a sudden I realize I'm undone and I need that Christ. I love those kind of conversions, and I hope they will continue to go on. So this is the gospel, scandalous in the way that God saves, scandalous in the way that we live it out, and it's up to us to make sure that we're continually, continually preserving the surprise and awe that God would love a people like us, that Jesus would stand open arms and say, you are mine. I have purchased you and redeemed you, dear one. Enough with the not enough, enough with the failure, enough with the pretended competency, Come and be with me. Come and be with me and grow with me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel, for what you revealed to us in Jesus. Um, I pray, Lord, that all of us, Christian or not this morning, would be freshly offended um, by the gospel of grace, that you are so merciful and so crazy um, to save a people like us in ways that we didn't expect, and yet it makes you all the more glorious and beautiful so, Lord, change us as we're constantly confronted with that truth, as we constantly grow in union to this Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. We stand and respond in song.